Welcome to the Constructed Futures Podcast with Hugh Seaton. Today, we're talking to Paul Doherty, licensed architect, IFMA fellow, senior fellow at the Design Futures Council, and one of the first people to really think about technology in the future of the built environment. Paul, welcome. Hey, thanks, Hugh. So, Paul, let's start at the top. Thinking about the built environment, where should we be going? Of all the possible directions that architecture, construction, and facilities management could go, what do you think is the direction we should be looking? Well, so uh, right off the top, thanks for the atom bomb. You know, the, the idea here is that there shouldn't be just one direction. Right? Uh, you know, the idea of trying to define our market um, as it's evolving uh, would be, you know, trying to say, you know, hey, you know, shoot at that target when it's moving. And I think that one of the things that we all should be doing right now, especially in this just very unique time of a global economic shutdown, uh, which has never happened before in the history of humanity, um, is to actually embrace this time, uh, you know, about trying to imagine and in certain cases reimagine what those futures can be, maybe not what they should be. And what they can be um, is this time where we have been in such a busy, 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 busy time leading up to uh, this past March of 2020 when the world suddenly changed. And what we found is that, you know, this time of busy, busy, busy really relied on tactical solutions uh, with that defined the future uh, in a very um, uh, immediate way. Um, it was like in the moment. Uh, even the tools that were out there, uh, you know, and the innovations were all about the here and now, uh, which is great because, you know, you, the, the next day you can be, you know, purchasing something up online as a service and you're in business. But there were some other things about where, you know, it meant to be, it tended to then go into like a herd mentality. Uh, this idea of prop tech and contact, uh, meaning, you know, property technologies and construction technologies. Um, it was like, you know, it reminded me of the dot coms of the late 90s, where, you know, if you had a good enough PowerPoint, you were thrown a ton of, a ton of money. Um, and what was great about this past, you know, recent dot bomb dot com type of way of looking at things like with contact and prop tech was it allowed the people to start to create innovations uh, that normally would not have seen the light of day, meaning we started to see, uh, you know, a lot younger, uh, you know, uh, folks in our industry start to ask questions, which was great. Uh, but again, they were tactical. In this age of COVID-19, uh, we're now in a at a point where we should really be looking at COVID in this time that we're spending either away from the office or not as much time in the office at home, remote learning, remote work. As a gymnasium, we're in the COVID gym, which means that we have the opportunity now to also combine the tactical approach with the strategic approach. And that's why, you know, when you ask the question, you know, where should we be going? Um, I think that this combination, this collision of both strategic and tactical responses um, is our moment. It is our time where things that have been festering, like if I only had that time, I wish I could do it. Uh, well, here we are. Right. And are you going to be a leader or are you going to be sitting and waiting for things to happen? And are you seeing that? Well, yeah. Uh, and what we're seeing now is, uh, you know, the, the response from the, 
from the younger generation coming up and saying, hey, you know, I've been thinking about this idea. Uh, but, you know, some of the pushback, of course, is, you know, you need a lot of experience in our industry in order to just get a taste of the depth of knowledge that, that you really should have. So disruption for disruption's sake uh, is chaotic. And that's not what our conservative industry needs. Uh, you know, well, things have always been done that way. Well, maybe that should be the challenge here. Maybe we should start to be looking at taking the approach that, you know, we need to have that conversation between people that know how to code just because of their generation. That's just what they do. Um, and they don't wait for like, you know, the older generation of industry that we're looking at technology, specific, so, specifically software, where software, not so much as a silver bullet, but as a new tool, and we can see some efficiencies and everyone shakes their head and goes, yes. But when we want to change, we have to wait for the next release of that piece of software. But, you know, the big difference now that, that you see out there is, you know, you'll see people just hack into it and say, well, I'm not going to wait for that. I want this. And boom, they, you know, they, they use a little API, they, come up with their solution and boom, done. Wow. So are, you, are you seeing a, like a, a different behavior towards risk? Cause I mean, you just described, you know, a conservative way of looking at things, which is the sort of classic built environment construction architecture and the software industry where, you know, risk is, is, is celebrated. Yeah. This becomes, um, I think even, uh, risk mitigation, of course. Yes, 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 yes. And, and, and I think that's great. But, you know, we're kind of in a really interesting point right now where the, the risk issues about that, about that human part of, of all this uh, really gets back to, uh, you know, again, this collision of tactical and strategic uh, for being human-centered about your choices. Number one, about how work gets done internally, but more importantly, about the work you're doing and, what, and what's the result and effect. Again, taking that more strategic approach, especially when we have forces uh, you know, globally on the outside of society that are forcing us to look at certain uncomfortable situations, such as you know, social, uh, you know, so social contracts uh, between each other and between governments and people, right? So then let's take that human-centric you know, you know, approach into our work, which really gets really interesting about you know, this idea of you know, taking a problem-solving process and and putting that spotlight on things that may be uncomfortable to talk about, but when else are we ever going to allow those conversations to happen? Meaning like in the idea of design, uh, you know, doing gated communities, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, making it single-family home McMansions, um, that's a great way of making money. And I was part of one of those money-making machines uh, because it really wasn't a home-building innovation group. It was a money-making machine because we were publicly traded, uh, you know, when I was uh, uh, the head of land development and home production for, for one of the large home builders in the U.S. And that was not human-centric, you know. It was human-centric from, from, from the aspect that we were creating gluttonous environments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, is that really what we've been put on this earth for? You know, what, what, what happens when we also talk about affordable housing? Is it, you know, are we trying to get the cheapest thing up just because we're trying to satisfy the, uh, you know, the, 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 the people most in need in our society 
that need something that all humans need, which is shelter. Um, do we want to recreate the projects of the 50s and 60s? Is that really what we want to do? So, you know, this idea of taking a human-centric response and bringing it right back down into your firm uh, and, and your company, uh, having that macro and micro conversation, I think, is really, really important that will provide pathways for each one of us in our own unique ways. And that is where the future lies. What's a good example of that? Like, how, what's a good example of, of kind of human, human-centered approaches? Well, sometimes we need to take the built environment for what it is, the tactical approach, which is creating shelter, creating places of work, play, learning, that type of thing. And those are very specific needs for societies, and we create those environments sometimes very, very close to each other, which create an urbanization, as we call it, right? Uh, so the close proximity of people to people also then provides rich areas for exchange, cultural, uh, you know, the need for libraries. I mean, all those things that we've learned over time, that the knowledge base is about the people to people communications, right? Now we are in a world that says, if we think strategically about how that should happen, wouldn't it be really good that in even in the age of COVID that we start to think about, well, what are we doing with ourselves, our wellness. I think that wellness approach, both from a mental state of being and also the physical state of being, is what we can start to provide beyond the single, you know, the majority of these uh, folks in our industry work on one-off, uh, you know, single building projects. But we're quickly being hit with productization of, of the built environment to a point where we have to start thinking more in systems meaning that it's not about just your one project, but rather multi-project or products of neighborhoods into districts, into cities. This is where the human-centric designs start to come into play because now here's a very simple example. Um, we can build in two major pieces of this that will make people feel healthier. One is we have guidelines that, were, uh, that have been published by the United Nations called the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. These are different measures about how the world should be looking at spending their budgets as a government and their time and their resources in order to raise the level of the human experience. Very, very heady type of measures, uh, everything from ending poverty to improved education and healthcare and housing and just all these things that are very, very cool for our industry, but not a lot of people know about the SDGs, right? But here becomes our argument to say, as a human-centric uh, you know, world, that's one thing that we can start to implement is put these measures in place so that we're, at least we're hitting a humanistic side of things. On the other side of things, on the physical side, I know that with our master plans, uh, you know, as we do our smart cities uh, uh, developments around the world, is that we know that we can take people from point A to point B, to, from point B to point C. <clears throat> and through that, we can actually make transparently their goal of hitting 10,000 steps every day, real. Why? Because we can design it like that. From where you live to a place of transportation, from a place of transportation to where you work or where you're learning, and vice versa, and, and, and create that circle. People don't even realize it, but we've created a healthy environment. Yeah. One of the things that, that, um, that the, the, the IDEO was one of the sources of, of human-centered design, and they talk a lot about prototyping and, and you know putting people into designers and, and thinkers into con concrete 
you know, real situations. Do you find that that happens, it happens more or do you think it should be happening more in how, how we design things? Oh, it should be happening more. And you raise something that is, you know, it's the $1 billion idea, like another unicorn. The organization that figures out, uh, and I will say this, uh, Hugh and Paul would take 10% of this of whoever implements it, um, is to take, that, <laughs> to take that human uh, perspective. And, you know, it's very tough to do, uh, you know, prototyping when you're talking about building the actual physical environment. But this is where the world of, of technology comes in and the digitalization of experience. It's what we call the experience of the mind, right? Where you can create these worlds that are either, uh, you know, accurate from the standpoint of visualization, uh, accurate to the point of geography, right? Like physically where you are and geometry scale to a point where, you know, a lot of these organizations that have been really struggling in the tactical world, uh, the people involved with virtual reality and augmented reality, the XRs, as you know, as they call them, yeah. uh, you know, the I know a few. folks, <laughs> well, you know, this is now, now's their time. And another example of the collision of strategy and tactical, because now all of a sudden you have a new way of competing against your competition by saying, you know, let's say it's a kitchen blowout. And because of COVID, uh, you know, you're wearing masks and you can't prototype, a, you know, a kitchen blowout over in Greenwich, Connecticut. Because why? Because it costs a freaking a lot of money, but, but you can easily, easily create designs and have the homeowner experience it. In other words, it speeds up the process of decision making, which is huge, huge, especially when it's to a person's home. On, on the commercial side, I, I, you know, when I was writing this book a while ago, um, I spoke with one of the uh, innovation folks at one of the big general contractors, and they were saying they've got a team that does virtual reality um, specifically to take 2D plans and turn them into an experience so the owner won't be sh- – they're, they're sure the owner will get what they think they're getting. They gave an example of a hospital where the owner thought they were – because, again, you're looking at 2D plans, and you may the owner may or may not do that a lot. So they actually built it out because there was a decision being pushed that they didn't agree with. And they, they, it turned out that they changed it because when the owner realized the space that was involved in, I forgot what the specifics were, but it really speaks to this idea that, that technology is allowing designers and, and decision makers to see, to make decisions that are much more grounded in what, you know, human, humans are going to experience as opposed to, you know, what in abstract they think might work. Yeah, and you couldn't have said it better. Uh, the this idea of rapid prototyping also brings to the forefront uh, this uh, idea of productization, right? Uh, because when you take the processes of design for a project as opposed to design for a product, uh, there are very, very big differences. Uh, I've been lucky enough to have been at IDEO's headquarters in Silicon Valley uh, numerous times on different types of projects. Uh, one time uh, I was with them for the design of the Palm 5 Palm Pilot, uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, which uh, three com was because I was working with them at the time. And the process that they went through was just mind blowing. Where if you can imagine, you know, uh, you know, a person with a bunch of post-it notes and whatever ideas were coming, put up, put up, put up, put up on the wall, blah, 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 blah. And they had this array of ideas. I'm like, whoa. And it was rapid. It was, it was like a, you know, it was like a sprinting in a marathon, right? And and when I took that and and started to talk about that with my, uh, you know, with my architectural colleagues and my engineering colleagues, 
they were transfixed on how do we start to implement more of that idea of you do not have to have 99% of the design done during a sketching exercise, which is the problem that most of us have in the current AEC world. Then, and, and, and now sort of the times of sketching because you were afraid to have other people start to rip it apart when it hasn't even been born yet. Right. And this right. fear, right? So, so when you go into a productization world, you're expected to throw away ideas. But every, for some reason, uh, you know, the architects and engineers in, 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 our, in, in our industry, it, it gets to a point where you don't want to show it until you've thought about just about everything because there's almost like this, this, this fear. People are more afraid of bad meetings than they are of failure because bad meetings mm-hmm. happen all the time and failures, you know, a year or two away. At least I've seen that in a lot of creative, uh, creative experiences is people are more worried about having it, like I say, having a bad meeting than, than the, the actual end result not working out. Have you found that? Absolutely. And when we start then talking about the idea of rapid prototyping with digitalization, well, now we're talking about the and importance value-wise of people that do know how a building gets put together. This is really important because, you know, your example of, you know, the average person not knowing what they're reading in a 2D plan. You know, I find it so funny on Sunday papers, right? Uh, you know, in the real estate section, you get, you know, these developers, either single family homes or, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, high rise multifamily apartments, those types of things where, they, they put up as part of their sales strategy, a floor plan of what your apartment's going to be. Yeah. And, yeah, it, yeah. and they put these symbols in there to represent a toilet and a sink. And yeah, yeah. Do you know that the majority of people don't know what the hell that is? Yeah. 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 And they don't know, they don't know whether they're, what's good or bad. Like why, exactly. why would I care that something is here? But I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm not, I, I haven't rented that many apartments in my life. Well, yeah, right. But, but, but the idea is this, uh, you know, that also goes to some professionals, licensed professionals in our industry. They are great with 2D, but they're just as surprised as everyone else when they go out to the site and see the built in 3D truth, which is why the idea of the 3D visualization now being, being easier and easier and more cost effective, but that now provides value. We're seeing the emergence of the the, uh, you know, the idea of this virtual design and construction professional, the VDCs, they are uh, what Randy Deutsch calls the super users uh, in his book, which I think is fascinating to start to see the emergence this way, because many of the technologies that have been born for this industry over the past 20 years have never been used by the right person. Uh, Revit and BIM being probably prime, uh, you know, exhibit A. You know, it was never meant to be a design tool. It was meant to enhance the design process because it was designed for a person that knew how work got done. Architects don't need to know the means and methods down to the nitty gritty of what a general contractor and the trades do. They need to understand it, but they haven't. You don't expect the architect to go out there and swing the hammer and 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 and, and use the saw blade. That's not their role. That's not their responsibility. But they do have to know what the resultant effect is. That's specifications, right? Now we're in a world that says, right, VDCs have to know how to build a building virtually as if it were being built in reality. Now we are on to something because this idea of what some people are calling the digital twin, hate the term, but understand that you got to communicate it somehow. 
that the digital twin really now becomes that tour de force of communicating, which is why sometimes like I look at the absurdity of our industry sometimes about how we try to communicate just that alone. And it's mind boggling. Let's go back to Revit and building information modeling, right? Do you know that more time is spent not in using the tool for what it's supposed to be, but for what it's not. In other words, right now, the thing that still rules out in the field are 2D drawings, right? The old blueprint type of uh, you know metaphor, where things have to be interpreted in 2D, right? Which is why we have issues <laughs> and lawyers, because everyone's interpreting it a little bit differently. It's like it, you know, it's the it's the whole marble of, of the elephant, but with BIM. Well, the contracts, well, the contracts specify that you need 2D, no? Correct, which is why we're in the world of saying, hey, isn't this a great innovation? We forgot that there are contracts and lawyers and insurance companies and everyone else that, you know, to, 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 to this day, it's not so much even the 2D drawings. The only thing really admissible in court are the specifications. Right. Imagine that. So yeah. who wants to do the first case law about BIM? I know I don't. So what you do is you create BIM. It's supposed to do all these things, but you're spending the majority of time creating 2D drawings of, of what is, quote-unquote, required. So why not just use AutoCAD? What the hell? Right? So absurd. Absurdity is something that I think we need to embrace and realize, stop being embarrassed by it. Let's have that tactical and strategic conversation now and see, do you have the right skill sets and the right type of people in place? Or are we talking about also backfilling and infilling? All the things that needed to be in place so that something like data-driven design can thrive inside of, a, of an authoring tool like BIM. And do you feel like that's that, you know, thinking for a moment about these digital twins and, and the, you know, digitization of, of what we mean, um, that's where this, you can have conversations about tactical and strategic kind of that, the bringing those two together in the same meeting because you, you've got space and time and things in front of you that are concrete. Uh, it's really hard to, to think at different levels of abstraction, but when you're able to do so in a, in a kind of a concrete way, I think it helps a lot. I mean, I, I don't know if you found that uh, you're able to have a, a, a wider ranging conversation around um, something like a, a 3D model than you are with a 2D a, a 2D plan. Correct, but you get and, and and Hugh, you hit right on the head. The idea of tactical and strategic is totally based upon that, because you can be using the three D for the strategic, but guess what the output is? It's the tactical need for the two D, and that's fine, right? Which is why this multimedia environment—it's not just about the three D immersive world, which is cool enough, and there's so many applications that have yet to be created there for that. But this idea of having this experience of the mind means that there's going to be certain people with certain roles that that you'd blow people's heads off. Explosions would happen in the job trailer if you did half of this stuff because it's almost like a spaceship landing from Mars in the middle of a job site. We don't want that because that's future shock. But what we can do is understand that data needs to be thought of like an element rather than being seen as a bit and a byte and a one and a zero. Those days are over. And that actually scared a lot of people because who wants to learn a database? I mean, Excel is reaching for a lot of people in our industry. So what happens when we start to think of data like an element, like, like it's water? We have the ability now to say, that's a single piece of data, but when I want to look at it, it's ice. That person is going to want to see it in liquid. The other piece, person wants to see steam, but it's still the same data. This is why these multi 
room type of environments, uh, almost like situation rooms, are really fascinating to me. Uh, you know, there's an innovation out there called BIMCube that's doing this right now uh, for a major build out of a headquarters in Silicon Valley. And it's fascinating to watch how people, when they enter this space, which is like a, you know, like a, it, it's like video walls surrounding you, yeah. uh, you, you can now start to, uh, you know, get into this world of, uh, you know, the way that, uh, you know, in Minority Report, when, right. uh, when you were able to go into that virtual, uh, you know, filing cabinet and be able to take your hand and through gestures move it. I mean, well, the space is aware of you, right? Yes. I mean, that's, that's sort of what was going on there. Is, is your correct? I mean, what you're getting at is is not just how we build or how we design, but also what we build. Right? Correct. Where, where, where data and, and media become part of 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 the of the built environment. They're not they're not players that you bring in, but they're actually you know, part of the, the building itself. Is that, is that sort of where you see this going? It has to flow through the building. Um, every building that we design and we build and we implement and manage, uh, we're taking a page directly out of, uh, you know, enterprise class IT services. Every building's a computer. Some buildings are servers. And they all are aware. Uh, they can be aware either through an interaction with a human uh, a lot of the emergence of voice recognition and 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 smart speakers, things like Alexa from Amazon. Uh, so the inanimate object starts to have a relationship with the human, or even more importantly, the Internet of Buildings of how buildings can talk with each other for safety, for security, for understanding the basic needs of humans that take a lot of the a lot of the uh, uh, things that humans don't do well that computers do. Uh, and a lot of that can be about safety, uh, you know. Uh, so yeah, we're we we are right at the precipice of looking at data as as the analogy would be, uh, you know, in biomimicry, uh, with blood f- flowing through veins and arteries and all sorts of things. Yeah, and it has to be like that and constantly changing. One of the things that that um just thinking about this, you know, buildings as as you know media extensions, but also back to some of the points you've raised earlier about products versus projects and human-centered design. You know, Clay Christensen was the guy that wrote the, the innovation, Innovator's Dilemma as well as a few other things. And one of the key points he had is that innovation starts to take off when the interfaces between things become standard because then you can each focus on one little piece instead of the whole thing. So he talked about how IBM had to do end-to-end. But as soon as they started making, you know, the, the connection between uh, one part of a device and another – you could carve that out and you could have, um, you know, um, like hard drive manufacturers adjusted that. Do you see that? I mean, think about how that might might work in, in the built environment, right? Where you're beginning to look at products that can be reconfigured and pulled together in different ways. I think that starts to allow us to focus on other things, right? Like media or human, human-centered experiences. Uh, how does that sound to you? Yeah. I mean, uh, like music, right? Um, and... <laughs> This this really comes out. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the and the idea here is that the best technology becomes transparent to the process, right? I mean that's really where Mr. Christensen was what was going with many of his writings. Uh, you know, uh, rest in peace. He was uh, a true leader with thought about you know this transformative process that we're in the middle of, and I think one of the best things that we do. Uh, internally in our organization is I almost feel like a guide 
uh, you know, like on a Disney ride, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, those guides, uh, I believe in Frontierland and Disneyland where, <laughs> you, where you yeah. can get on the, on the riverboat and, you know, and there's the crocodiles and there's the elephants and, and, and there's this storytelling that's going on as you're seeing these magical things happen around you. Um, or even Spaceship Earth over at Epcot, right, where you're going up and back down and sideways and all this stuff. But there's this constant narrative happening there. And I think that, you know, as we start to understand that there are so many choices now, we should also learn from the past about how quickly innovations can go away as well, um, which is why we like to have a lot of innovations that we call ingredients, right? Uh, because Every situation is so unique that you can put different ingredients together to create what your solution is, which we call a recipe. And we actually call a lot of these, uh, you know, writings our, our cookbook for real, right? Because it, 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 there are so many different variables about how you should choose what uh, either technologies, innovations, processes, people in order to create that solution that we needed to have um, – this approach of how can we make it as transparent as possible? Because if you ask people to do something different, it's very difficult to have them change their behavior to do that. But if there's a will, there's a way. So out in the field about 20 years ago, there was this uh, company called Sprint way back in the day. Right? Yeah. And they were famous because they, they connected their system to be not just for telephone calls, but for one-to-one -one communications, walkie-talkie push to talk. And they actually partnered up with a hardware company to create a push to talk button. And the construction industry, especially the guys in the field, flocked to it like, like you know, you know, sharks to chum. Everyone could communicate with everyone else. And guess what? It was part of your sprint plan. So you could actually call your wife and pick up bread on the way home and everything else in between. And everyone thought this was the greatest innovation since sliced bread. And being a senior project manager that has to control the flow of communication from the field to the back offices, from the back offices to the field, and then within the field, this was the biggest nightmare that ever, ever I ever saw. So you, how do you stop a tsunami when everyone's using a technology and thinking it's great and you're going, this is a disaster? And let me give you a, you know, a case in point. So one of the key areas of how a building gets built is that there are certain sequences and sequencing of mm -hmm. materials, trades, meaning the people, and then setting things up for at least a two-week look ahead so that you can get to your daily reports and then benchmark yourself against the overall construction plan, okay? Which means that sometimes, you, depending on the complexity of the building you're building, you may want to stop a trade halfway through the wall being built, and the tr you don't have to tell the trade why. Just stop here. Your day's work is done. Right. Because they can't see everything is your point. Yeah, exactly. Which is yeah. why you have a single point of control. Right? right. So what was happening was you'd get walkie-talkie guys going, hey, man, uh, you, know, it's, you know, it's about 2 o'clock. We've got another hour. We get a head start tomorrow. Why don't I close up this wall and we'll be like, you know, and then we won't have to do the, you know, as much tomorrow. Yeah, Joe, you know, that sounds great. Meanwhile, it never went through the project manager. Right. And all of a sudden, I take a walk after everyone's gone home, and they just close up the wall that I have an 8 a.m. inspection for an, an elect a rough electrical inspection, and now i got to tear the wall down. Rework in the field. That's what walkie-talkie communications, push-to-talk, did, did for our industry. 
It was a nightmare. So sometimes technology is great, but guess what? It went away really, 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 really quick, which is why bring your own devices now becomes a really interesting piece because now a lot of people have smartphones, if not everyone on the job site. Right. Means that push to talk went away because asynchronous communication all of a sudden became very popular. Yeah. Because why? Because you could hide behind it. Right? Oh, that's funny. Meant, How do you mean? Well, because synchronous communication means shit, I gotta do the work right away. Asynchronous, I could sit on it. Right. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't get that text. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or it just came through. That's interesting. Human, human behavior, right? So yeah. what we do is we try and find a lot of these commonalities uh, of what are things that we know, uh, you know, like let's say in a certain geography like China or in the Middle East where we work. How do we start to take that and lo- localize it, number one, and start to see the resultant effects? And which means that our recipes are now becoming not just like a whole list of different uh, you know, uh, dishes, but we can create cuisines out of them, right? The Chinese cuisine is very specific. Why? Because it's about that culture. It's about that geography and the needs and wants and yada, yada, yada. So, well, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, how they like to use space is a great example, right? Like in, in China, people are comfortable with being much closer to, I mean, pandemic aside, um, much closer to each other than Americans who are famously, you know, want a, an arm's length from each other. Is that the sort of thing that you, you, you know, you find drives what, yes. what recipes work? Yes. And, and you know, quite, quite interestingly, uh, you'll also find that in totalitarian states like uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, China in particular, um, there's this want and a need to be first. Hmm. Uh, you know, there's almost like this thing of, you know, China really pushing its nationalistic muscles because they are sick and tired of being the sick man of Asia, right? Hmm. Never want to go there again. We're prideful, you know, and the same thing in Saudi where they're realizing they have 50 years left of pumping oil up out of the ground and then what? So they have a real need to be seen as we're not just these nomads out there. We're sophisticated. We've been educated now in the UK and the US and we do have good leadership and we're not about just, you know, the, the Middle East is just not a killing grounds. You know, there's some spectacular things in their background and their culture their society that they want to celebrate, which means that when they are looking at technologies and they see some results, they're the first ones out there to you know raise the flag and say, holy cow, look at this. We did this first, blah, 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 blah. So it's a great place to take innovations and recipes and test drive them. But I mean, you, talked, you talked in an earlier conversation you and I had about uh, boomerang innovation, which I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. Is this sort of where you're going? Yeah, because, well, yes, uh, but, you know, when we're talking about society's need and wanting to take it in and the different wants, sometimes how you get there though, can you, you can stumble a lot, meaning that their appetite for innovation is, is is insatiable, but how you implement it is really based upon the localization, which is maybe not as sophisticated. And that's not a knock. That's just the facts, which means that when we do implement our technologies, uh, sometimes we have to do things like design build or, uh, you know, uh, prefabrication because we can't trust the local talent to actually do it the way that it has to be because of, this, because of the sophistication and the, uh, and the complexities involved with trying to create a recipe, right? So that means that we have to take this idea and then, make sure that we insulate it and incubate it as best as possible 
so that we can actually then uh, be able to use the same technologies that uh, and, and innovations that are mostly U.S. based from our firm's perspective. That's where we like to start. Not that it's 100%, but a lot of it is because it's very difficult to actually get technologies and innovation implemented on U.S. soil. And it's, you know, it's weird because we're, we, the number one thing about the U.S. that, that they will never take with, you know, for, for, from us um, is our innovation. We're just a society built upon being a cowboy, right? Where they don't have that ingrained because it's more communal. Like, like you were saying, you're like, let's do it for the greater good. I don't mind being, uh, you know, I don't need as much space because, you know, it's about the families, about the community, blah, 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 right? Where it, but what a great place to incubate it like in China, and then be able to see it mature to a point where I don't fall into the same, uh, you know, uh, hazards that I do here in the U.S. So although we may think about it, we have some great ideas, the implementation sometimes becomes very difficult because of regulatory issues, because of lawyers, in case things go sideways, yada, 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 yada. And then most importantly, like the inventor's dilemma said, uh, you know, have, have you timed the market problem? Right? Yeah. And so, so by going overseas with the massive projects we work on, let's say you have a smart refrigerator. I'm not buying one. I'm buying 500,000. So the markets are creating themselves for innovation, which means that when the U.S. government says to me, this idea of boomerang is really interesting. And when the Department of Commerce says, yo, hey, you, you, this is great because you're not just exporting, but now you're re-importing our own right. ideas. And they've already been Test, tested and developed you know, somewhere else. Correct. Interesting. Um, so, and you know, coming from that is this idea that that it, doing business in different places is easier and harder. Have you have you found that that just the the innovation uh, and and generally getting things done it differs a lot from place to place? I mean, of course it does. But but you know, are there what where have you found if you're going to go next to try something out? Are there parts of the world that are better than others? Uh, well. If you don't mind, I'll rephrase the question. The hardest place to do this type of innovation business is the United States. Yeah. Holistically. And it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, in the music industry, right? There was a time for a long time from like the 50s up and through like, you know, the, the knots, right? Where uh, if you were an American bass band that was just killing it, you know, playing the bars and you know, just getting your head up above water, you know, and, and just doing great. That because like, like, so I was in the music industry one time, right? And we were hot band in Manhattan, you know, killing it. You know, a lot I remember of, you with long hair. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, well, now, now you really date me. So, you know, the, the idea of, of a local band ever making a big was just so bizarre to the local community. They went, no, man, we enjoy you. Like, yeah, it's Paul, it's Carl, it's Dougie, uh, you know, you're, you're our boys. How could you become big, right? So, and then, but then these lesser bands would come from places like the UK. And because they're from the UK, they were embraced. And you're going, oh, man, it's almost like that grass is always greener, right? Right. Um, so we literally had to go to the UK and be perceived as a UK band to come back and actually play the bigger places in Manhattan. You and Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Twisted Sister. You know, I mean, a, a ton of bands like that. You know, where you had to go outside to come back in. And that's kind of what we're seeing now with innovations. Uh, because it's invented here, 
well, just how could, could it be? You know, come on, you know, yeah, I know it's got, you know, Cornell behind it or MIT's Media Labs or Stanford's SciFi program or whatever, right? But, you know, how, how could it really be, right? Uh, it, which is why it's so bizarre. Yet when you go overseas, America by far, and I do this by far, is still the gold standard, no matter what. Because everyone is saying, well, it's just as good as America's. Well, then why not just get the American? You know, know, it's like it's so bizarre the way that the rest of the world tries to position themselves. Well, you know, it's made in Germany. It's got to be great. Well, you know, we're just as good as the Americans. You know, the sales, it it, it drives me nuts. And the fact that sometimes we apologize for ourselves, we're damn good. We're damn good, especially in the built environment. You know, I, I was at a recent conference about prefabrication uh, just about, well, nine months ago now. And what was bizarre was watching how, uh, you know, there was a, a handful of folks coming from like Singapore, and, uh, a couple in the Middle East, uh, uh, and I think one from Europe. Uh, now, the Europeans have some really good pieces, like their joinery of putting together prefabricated panels is second to none. They're great at it. I mean, you know, they just slam the car door of a BMW or a Mercedes. You, you get what I mean about joinery, You're like a shunk, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, so there's bits and pieces, but holistically, when you look at an industry, because we're so large in this country, as an industry and as a country, right? Um, Sometimes we lose fact that we're damn good and yeah, we are doing leadership stuff. Because at this conference, it was almost like everyone was apologizing that, oh, wow, well, look what the Singaporeans are doing. Look what the Germans are doing. I'm going, yeah, it's okay, but look in the mirror, man. And I'm not waving the flag. I'm not saying MAG. I'm not saying anything of that. I'm just saying, I think we have to have a little bit more confidence in what we do. Because again, the hardest place to do anything is here. You know, it's the old Sinatra song. You know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Damn truth. So put on your big boy pants and let's start innovating. But, you know, we also have regulations, uh, you know, especially the localization issues um, are terrible sometimes when you're trying to get something through in the politics. But if you can make it through, it will be the gold standard. So, yeah. And if you think about how, you know, we a lot of things get invented here. You know, is it William Gibson who said that the future is already here? It's just not evenly distributed. I think America's, you know, more more than a lot of other places. That's that's very true, because you'll have some things that are amazing and lots of things that are just depressingly, you know, not well run. You think about what coming back to your point before about industrialization, sort of product versus project. As we look at the future and how that how that can become more and more how things are built, what do you think about what that means about how what skills need to be kind of just you know. Uh, developed for lack of a better word um you know because we have a huge number of people that know how to how to build the way that's been built in the past but you think about what it takes to pull together a modular or install um modular buildings or even just prefab pieces Uh, what do you think is is necessary for the for the industry and for for the broader built environment in um group of industries to 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 take better advantage of that well I think first, and, and, and great question, Hugh. I mean, this is where we are at uh, the proverbial fork in the road. Uh, but, you know, throw on top of that a three-dimensional paradox <laughs> on top of it. Right? right. That I think that, you know, when I take a look at the efforts 
that are being made out there for the trades in particular to be educated. Um, it, it is, it's just, it, it's amazing to me uh, that, you know, entire groups of people are being educated in such a good way that, um, that you can prepare them for the future. Uh, a case in point would be, I think, the unions, the trade unions, uh, you know, in, in the United States, more so than anywhere else in the world, where they are picking up on this change because they don't want to see, you know, robotics taking over for people, which is not going to happen, but other things will. In other words, redundancies will happen, but that's not because someone's coming after someone's jobs. So the idea that you need to have the intelligence and the instinct behind the process is what's important. Meaning, you know, we may get to a point where certain trades because of industrialization and, 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 and other uh, like, uh, you know, uh, de- deliverable changes may not need as many human beings on there. Now that would be usually, you know, the pitchforks and the People with uh, you know flames coming at you, especially the unions, because they thrive on on a lot of members. Right? I mean, that's the whole idea. But the I, it, uh, uh, that's the whole idea on one end of of what makes a union powerful. But I think the most powerful thing about unions uh, is that we use union labor on our projects here in the U.S. because we get it done right. Right. And that's because of the educational and the training processes that they go through, which is they've really discovered that that's that's their their value, isn't it? It's it's that's less correct. wage protection than it, although that's still there. Still it's, there. It's but... pre- preparation and and you know a union guy has been through a certain number of years of of you know a process to get to where they are. Ah, which which let's get back to the experience of the mind. Now, what happens when you know you may not need as many people uh, you know with wrenches uh, you know putting putting together that pipe. With a you know so so what happens though if you can take that knowledge and put it into a virtual environment and you can actually train people better I think the thing that blew me away the most was uh, you know our mutual friend Mike Zvanovich uh, you know up at the local in uh, Monica Illinois I believe it's uh, local five ninety seven right with the uh, pipe fitters yep. he was showing me things that yeah blew my mind right yeah. like by using VR as a training mechanism but where's the intelligence come from the union right. members themselves. That's right. The senior, the senior folks creating an experience that the junior folks can learn from. There you go. So yeah. what, what, what are the skills required? I think we're starting to get a peep into the future because the unions are creating the future. And it's not because someone thought it was a cool idea. There's a market response and also some very, very smart people that strategically are taking the tactical ways of how work gets done and position themselves for, for success, right? Which also then lends itself to new types of skills that are going to have to be learned, such as, you know, it used to be uh, with the one-offs, right? Like, uh, like, like putting pipes together with a coupler, right? You right. were done. You were done. Yeah, tightened up. Okay, on to the next project. What happens when it becomes a product and it gets reused? You think in systems more, don't you? Oh, well, huge, especially when we're talking about the world now of pop-up buildings. They exist. I'm working on a project right now about how to, uh, you know, assemble and then dismantle uh, entertainment facilities uh, every six weeks. The project was originally developed for a entertainment 
uh, a moving entertainment uh, circus, if you want to call it that, uh, uh, for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia called the Seasons Projects. Look it up on Google. Seasons, right? And different parts of the season, uh, you know, summer, spring, fall, winter, uh, this this innovation meets entertainment meets education circus would land in Jeddah, let's say, right? And it would be there for six weeks. And we were responsible for one of the uh, theater experiences, a brand new type of theater experience where it had a haptic chair that you sat in, uh, very similar to uh, the new types of rides at Disney, like the Pandora ride, where you sort of sit on one of those banshee flying dragon thingies, right? And you feel it and you have the haptic experience. You actually feel it breathing because you're sitting on it like a horse. And it's an amazing experience. Well, we're doing that with a group called Iconic Engine uh, out of Hollywood uh, that were the people behind, uh, uh, they, uh, they grew out of a, of a special effects group called uh, uh, Digital Domain. Uh, mm-hmm. groups in behind the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. So everything from Iron Man to the Avengers, right? So really seasoned people, right? They wanted an enclosure for their 10-seat, quote-unquote, theater that was partially uh, immersive physically because you're in this chair, but you only put on things like VR and AR at appropriate times during the storytelling experience, so it's not like walking into like a VR theme park where you got to wear the goggles the entire time. Right. It's almost like, you know, the old days of, of, okay, everyone put on your 3D glasses, you know, at that moment in the movie. Very, very similar type of thing. But the enclosure, which was, was uh, what was really interesting to us, because number one, it had to pack up and then move on to the next uh, city within a two-week period to start another six-week run. Right. Uh, and so it had to be flexible enough, but also uh, hardy enough to withstand the harsh different conditions of climate, of movement uh, and be sustainable. And also make sure that the indoor air quality was up to snuff because, well, now COVID. Right. I mean, all these different things go into this thing. That's a totally different skill set of and 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 uh, a different typology of building uh, that that has never need had been needed before. But now there's immediate need. So this idea of pop-up buildings is actually also moving into the world of much larger scale. Uh, right now, we are experimenting uh, and researching this idea of an esports arena. You know, what happens with esports now is that they go into you know like an existing of I'll, I'll use Madison Square Garden, but any right. type of like hockey uh, concert, basketball, right. Right? with and, a big playing area in the in the, in the middle. Correct, and, and even in New York City, they held it at uh, Arthur Ashe Stadium, right? Uh, right. Last last summer, the League of Legends, one of the big lead out there for esports, but uh, so we had to really do some interesting research on this uh first of all with my son who's nine years old who's a Fortnite, roblox minecraft my nine-year-old nephew does the same thing right with their friends right and what i noticed was there's no manual it's not like how to you learn from the experts that are playing it all the time the gamers and what was really interesting was watching how the youtubers become these superstars that give away a lot of the tricks of, you know, if you double click over here and this thing, you find an Easter egg and you have legendary status. I'm like, I'm learning all this stuff going, oh, that's pretty damn cool. Right. And they all exchange this information. It's like, it's this huge community of exchange of knowledge of how to make the game even more rich as an experience, right. Right. For you and your friends to win. And they put these, these YouTubers on a, on a status of like a Michael Jordan 
type of status. And then they watch as these guys go in or girls go into these different esports uh, challenges, these championships, and who do they surround themselves with? Right? So it's almost like, you know, like an all-star team, you know, going off to play for the World Cup. So uh, what happens though is the, the, the people then buy tickets together because it's a very communal experience of these are the fans behind that particular YouTube star, right? But what happens if that YouTube star gets kicked out and you're, you and your friends are lucky enough to get courtside tickets and it's the first day of a three-day tournament? Well, guess what? That entire lower section is empty. Yeah. The, so the idea now from a typology is going, what would happen if we had movable sections of fans, that once your team lost, your hydraulically, your section goes way up to the top and then the next batter up, right? You know, goes down. What would what, what would happen if we had a kinetic building that could be portable and easily installed that has it's like really thinking about sense. Yeah, really thinking about how people use the, the building and, and using it in new ways. Correct. Right? So, so kind of human-centered in a, in a new way. Well, I think we're we're coming sort of towards the end. Um, I, I love that we've covered a kind of a gamut from, you know, human-centered design to, um, design, you know, products, not projects, to skills and, and, um, and uh, you know, how things are different across different countries. Um, if you were to leave the, the listener with something they should be focused on for the future, what do you think that might be? You, you know... I just have some, you know, big, big thoughts here. Uh, I mean, if I had directives, if I had directives, I'd form a religion and, you know, wear a long white coat and, you know, go off there and pontificate. Um, I've made mistakes early in my career about pontificating. Uh, you know, when I wrote a book on about how to use the internet in 1996, when the internet to everyone was AOL and CompuServe, uh, you know, it, it almost sounded preachy. Right? And, uh, and, and, you know, Thankfully, you know, I, everyone said, oh, you know, that's just a fad. <laughs> you know, like the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and, and, and now we're at a point where, you know, all these years later, um, you know, I can take, I guess, a little, a little bit more of a softer tone, but with, but with more of a mature urgency. And that would be that, you know, um, you know, seeing human centric design or human-centric construction, or human-centric real estate. Um, you just can't say that anymore. It's not meant for a podcast. It's not meant for a PowerPoint. Um, it's not meant to write a book about. It's about living it and really doing it. In your own firm, you can do that. You know, Be more human-centric about your workers, about your customers, and be kind. I think that's one thing about this whole the age that that's emerging, this age of the pandemic, is we've got to have more time. That even if you disagree, disagree with empathy. Mm. Right? You know that 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 we have this time to be kinder to each other and maybe listen a bit more. Which means that when we are looking at our world, especially as we're doing these things remotely, and you know the word Zoom is now a verb. How did that? Yeah. Happen? Six months, yeah. right? Um, well, we're now in a data-driven environment, meaning that it's not so much about the documents and the media and yada yada yada. It is about understanding about you better understand data better, you know, data in context, because what it means something to you is going to mean something else to someone else, but understand it's still the same piece of data. I think that's a huge leave behind, 
This, this idea of a human-centric, data-driven environment, I think that should really be our goal. And it is not that there's a cookie cutter, one target up there. But again, more of that, you know, soft environment with with a, with, with that sense of urgency, uh, which then would also lead to, you know, keep that bigger picture in mind. What is a big picture to you may not be a big picture to someone else. You know, my big picture is, you know, I have a 12 million resident city that is being built based upon the responsibility I have as the master planner in China. That's a big freaking picture because I have to anticipate needs that don't exist right now. Right. Right. So it's so, okay, that's a huge responsibility. And that's what I do. That's why I used to have long hair and I have none now, but that's another yeah. story. You know, we'll, we'll get to that episode some other time, but you know, which also means that this means that we are also in an age of looking outside of what we know. And sometimes it can feel uncomfortable, but you know, this collision of industries, the embracing of the absurdity of the collision, which means that, you know, collisions can be either violent or they can actually weave a tapestry, especially inside of the human condition. That's huge. You know, this idea of being able to take like, let's say the, uh, you know, the automotive industry, and understanding that mobility and the strides that are being taken there are going to directly affect how you lay out a city. It's no longer about street grids. When you've autonomous vehicles, your roads are even different looking. They're, they're not as wide. You don't need stop signs and, and uh, traffic lights or parking lots. What does that do to design? What does that do to our experience? And finally, you know, Hugh, uh, you know, we've known each other you know, you know, a long time. And uh, I think one thing that I think has always rang true, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, you, you and I just hope that when you're doing something out there for everyone listening to this podcast, let's just do good for our world. Uh, again, you know, now's that time. That's fantastic. Um, well, that's a great way to end. I think, you know, we're, we're talking about the built environment, the built world where the, you know, we're talking about building the, the ground on which and the rooms in which, Every other activity happens in most cases. Um, so doing good for the world is a nice way to end. Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Hugh.